Um, Lord God, I thank you for Norman. I thank you for the way in which he enjoys your word, Lord, that you speak to him through it, Lord. I pray as he preaches to us, Lord, we'll receive the word that you have for us today, Lord. Lord, we, we bind the force of the enemy as we look into a really violent uh, nation, Lord, the Egyptians. And I just pray that you, you bless Norman and everything he has to say. Amen. Okay, so, yes, one of the things I've missed from Joe is washing up with him, and, um, I, 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 and washing up is a very lonely act now, Joe, now that you're not there, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, I'm sure the standard's gone down terribly now that you're not there to correct me and keep throwing, me, throwing pans back to me and saying, that's not clean. The trouble is with professionals who wash up, you know, for a living is that you can't, you can't do it as well as they do, so... <clears throat> Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. And uh, David gave us an introduction um, last week, and we're going to continue. And we're looking at the life of Moses. And this is the, the, he's not even born as we're reading this bit, but this is the work of God to bring about uh, his servant Moses into life. And so I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 1. And I'm going to read from verse 8 down to verse 22. <clears throat> and it goes like this. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithon and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifa and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwife arrives. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. This whole book and this chapter in particular 
is all about the amazing sovereignty of God. It's about no matter what men and women do to try and obliterate the plans of God, God is sovereign. He's on the throne. He rules. And his will will be fulfilled. And uh, last week, in fact, um, David reminded us of the promises that came to Abraham and so on. Didn't, the promises were given and then there was a, a big uh, gap and then, um, you know, the promise came about maybe many years later. For with God, he's never late and never early, but he's always on time. And I don't know if you know your Bibles well. If you're visiting, you may not know your Bibles. What's this reference at the beginning to this guy, Joseph? It says here, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Very quick resume is that Joseph was the young man, you probably know it all to do about the Technicolor dream coat, and uh, he was the guy called by God to enable the Israelites to come through into Egypt when there was a tremendous famine. And he, by his wisdom that was given to him by God, he was promoted to become prime minister, and he organized the storehouses of Pharaoh in order that as the, the drought got worse and worse, nevertheless, there was food for the Egyptians and for the neighbors around. And then you have this tragic verse. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. It's interesting that Proverbs chapter 27, verse 24, says this. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks, for a crown does not last for all generations. And so although God had been so much in this family and in all the 12 sons, and such a wonderful work of God had been done, suddenly we arrive at this point where it says, a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing. Do you know, I believe we're a little bit in that time now in this nation. When we were in the Second World War, the whole nation turned out to pray. You could see pictures of people queuing the churches, praying because the situation was so desperate that we looked as though we were about to be overthrown. And the king called the nation, I think ten times, to pray for this nation. And they did pray. And if you know history, the deliverance that was brought about in this nation was, had to be put down to only God's sovereign act. Like the liberation of the beaches. and I won't go into it all, but amazing acts of God. And where are we now? Only, what, 70, 78 years since then? And it's almost like a new king is now in the place to which... Those who called out to God mean nothing. <clears throat> There's a great warning in this passage. It's a great warning. And it's a warning also for us that are parents. And the warning is this. 
Don't just assume that your children and your grandchildren will somehow pick up your faith by osmosis. They won't. But demonstrate by your life the vitality of what you believe. Let it be vital. Let it be in your home. Let it be in everything you do. There's a vitality, a living that you believe in the one who is raised from the dead. It's a stark warning. And here we see it being acted out. So what will happen now? Well, I need to ask a question of myself. In fact, as I've prepared this through this passage, I found this passage keeps asking me questions. I don't know about you when you read your Bible. Doesn't it ask you questions? You can't just read your Bible and put it down. It's asking questions all the time. Last time I preached, I left you with a question. How is the resurrection of Jesus affecting my daily life? I'm still thinking about that question. And now I've got another question. And it's this. Is my trust in Jesus as vital and as obviously in my life now as it was when I started with him? Or have I got used to things? Has a day arrived when, oh, those Initial moments when I, I realised God had saved me. Have they? Oh, I don't know. It means not so much now. Maybe you went to Sunday school. I don't know. Maybe you had friends. Maybe you even responded to God at some stage in your life. And it was wonderful. And then other things crowded in somehow. You lost the vitality of it. This is a good challenge. A day arose, a king arose, to whom Joseph meant nothing. Do you notice something about this king? I wonder what you notice as I read it. It's, it's obvious that this king is terribly, terribly insecure. Because it says, it says here, Then a new king arose to whom Moses meant nothing. And he said, look, he said to his people, The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join with our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. Listen, if you will not let the sovereignty of God be the thing that affects your thinking and your life, you will almost certainly fall into insecurity. Because if you won't have God, if I won't have God as my sovereign, then I have to be sovereign myself. I've somehow got to bolster my sovereignty. But the church is here so that these days don't pass without anybody knowing. But the church is here to demonstrate, no, there is a king in heaven. The Lord is raised from the dead. The Lord is affecting our lives on a daily basis. That's our job. That's our privilege. That's our joy. A very insecure new king this guy is. What we notice about him is that he fears everything. He's got all these people and they're multiplying. And instead of being grateful and thinking, hey, this is good. And I remember this Joseph guy, how they saved the nation. No, he doesn't want to remember any of that. I mean, maybe he's like a new prime minister, you know, that wants to clear the decks. We don't want to remember that old stuff. Or maybe he is just 
terribly insecure. They're rising in authority. And I'm supposed to be king. I better impose my rule upon them. When we lose sight of God's sovereignty, panic and fear will almost certainly move into our lives. And we're amongst a generation now that is actually living in that. People I speak to, often they speak about such fear in their lives. Now, it's not, they're not quivering with fear, but they're worried about this and worried about that. I'm going to look at some of that in detail today. We're living in a very insecure nation who actually, like this king, who's throwing his weight around and on the outside looks very strong, inside is crumbling and full of fear. You see the problem? There's only room for one sovereign on a throne. If God, I, if God's sovereign, make room for him. But if you want to be sovereign, I want to determine what happens in my life. Then actually, there's not room on a sovereign throne for two to sit. This is the problem. And so, we get terribly insecure. And this seems to me, we just need to think a bit about this fear business. Because he's fearing all sorts of things that may not happen. Have you ever noticed that? The things you fear, they don't happen, do they? Something else might happen, but the things you fear. And you spend hours worrying about something, thinking about it. The scenarios running through your head. But listen, it is possible to put your trust in Almighty God, who is sovereign, who does see the end from the beginning who does know right from wrong, who is able to bring correction to our lives and bring peace to our lives. For he is the God of peace. They say there are four responses to fear. They say they are fight, flight, freeze or fawn. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. In, the king has decided he's going to fight. I'm going to sort these out. I'm going I'm to overpower them so that they're, they're, they know who's king. Or maybe it's flight in the sight of something that makes you fear. You run. Or maybe in the face of fear, it's something that makes you want to freeze like a rabbit in the headlights. Or maybe somehow you say, oh, you fawn. In other words, you, 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 you take it on as a friend and say, oh, fear. No, no, I, I, I'm enjoying the fear. You can't do that. And yet there's lots of different types of fear. I wish I could jolly well do it without falling off all the time. If people didn't fear, of course, they wouldn't be able to protect themselves. If you didn't fear being run over, 
you just run across the road and get run over by a bus. Well, you wouldn't in Suffolk because there aren't enough buses, but it's a possibility. And fear actually is a natural reaction for both the Christian and the non-Christian. I was reading Terry's book, uh, Terry Virgo's book on Moses called God's Treasured Possession. And he says the following. He says, I once heard Billy Graham testify that he'd been in an airplane which suddenly got into danger. And Billy Graham said, as a believer, I was not automatically indifferent to the situation. I didn't think, oh, I'm a Christian. That's fine. doesn't matter what happens. He said, no, no, I wasn't indifferent to the situation. He said, my immediate reaction was fear, which he said is an appropriate human response. But he also said this, as Christians, Billy Graham said, we're not automatically fearless as though our natural instincts are blanked out by being a Christian. And then he said, in that situation, Billy Graham said, I had to do these things. He said, I had to pause, I had to pray, and I had to consider. And then I had to remember, and then I had to reflect on the truth of God's promises. I found that really helpful. Because some people say, oh, you shouldn't fear, shouldn't fear. But actually, there is a way of dealing with that fear by looking to the one who is sovereign. Pause and pray. Consider, remember, and reflect on the truth of God's promises. Do you know him well enough to do that? You can know him well enough to do that. For he's not far off. So the Bible says he is close to you. And you don't have to show him that you're a good guy or a good woman in order to pray. You're allowed to approach his throne because he loves you. As somebody prayed while we were worshipping. You can know this God yourself. You don't have to react like this king. You don't have to start throwing your weight around when you get fearful. But you can turn to God who is almighty and who loves you. And the Bible says he knows you by name. In fact, the Bible says, just like this Moses who we're about to hear about being born, he says, even before you were formed in your mother's womb, he knew you. And the reason we have such confidence in him is because he was raised from the dead. Some sermons ago, we looked at the whole thing of the resurrection and the substantial nature of the raising of Jesus and the way that it's a historical fact. And if you look into those who know and those who have studied this, you'll find the arguments for the resurrection are much stronger than the arguments for this being some fairy tale. For history shows it to be a fact. You can know this God, and you do not have to fear. For his part, the king couldn't, this king couldn't do that. He had nobody to turn to. I just love that song we sang, Gina, with those words, you know, I, I've got a reason to sing. If you're, you're amongst us this morning, you think, what is this? What are these people so happy about? Listen, we're not on anything. We've just discovered somebody 
who loves us and who is so substantial that he is involved in our lives and we can trust him because he's faithful. And we've got something to sing about. I remember hearing about when the, uh, many years ago there was a famine in Ethiopia and uh, many people were dying. Adults and children were dying. But I remember the newscaster saying something. He said this, we knew when a corner had been turned, when things were beginning to improve. He said, for the women began to sing and start doing one another's hair. There's something about responding that is a good thing. We can live in the freedom that God's given us. But you need to know him. You need to get to know him. He's worth getting to know. And so this king starts to oppress. And he he says, you know, harsh labor, bricks and mortar, out in the fields, continuously driving them, driving them, driving them. This king should have read Proverbs chapter 28, verse 3. It says this, A ruler who oppresses the poor is like driving rain that leaves no crops. Interesting phrase. Listen, the church isn't here to drive people to God. The church is here to demonstrate the effect that his love has on us, that we are changed by the power of his spirit. May I ask you that question again? Is my trust in Jesus today as vital and obviously affecting my life now as it was the first day I believed? If it isn't, get close to God. Let him fill your heart with his joy and his purpose But in the midst of this little passage, we've got the midwives. The king passes this edict and says to the midwives, by the way, talk about difficult, um, you know, national health. They've got thousands, I don't know how big the Israelites were at this time, the, the hundreds, it says they were numerous, and apparently they've only got two midwives. Talk about worked off your feet. The, and, and they're so honoured by God, they get named. Did you notice that? They're named by God. That, another example, this whole Bible, it doesn't, it doesn't, oh, lots and lots, how many seats were filled? Oh, dozens. No, the Bible names people because God loves individuals. He knows you, even if you don't know him. He knows you. And so he says to these midwives, look, if it's a boy... Snuff him out. If it's a girl, let her live. But did you notice about the midwives? It says here, let me read it. It says, the, um, it says, uh, the king said to the Hebrew midwives, who, uh, it says, when you are helping uh, the Hebrew women b- during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see the baby's a boy, kill him, but if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt had told them to do. There's another fear. It's a fear of things happening, but there's also a fear of God. And that fear means reverence. It means honoring. It means respecting so much that I want to do the right thing. 
And these dear two ladies who were midwives, it says they feared God and felt we cannot do that. And they did that even to their own danger of their own lives. They feared God so much that they didn't worry about their own lives. I remember John Wimber saying, you know, faith in God is spelt, uh, uh, what is it, which way around does it go? Um, what is it? Sorry, go on, R-I-S-K, it's K, yes, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. It's a risky thing, following God. It's a risky thing today to say, no, I'm not going to do that. It's not with our noses in the air saying, I'm better than that. It's saying, I honor God so much that I must do what I feel he's calling me to do. And so they didn't do what the king said, they let the boys live. Some people have said perhaps they were dishonest. I don't think they were dishonest at all. Because the scripture actually says that God honored them for their actions. So maybe that was true. The Hebrew women uh, just gave their birth so quickly that you know, they could hardly stop the baby coming. But we don't know. But I, don't, I know that the scripture says this, that God honored these women for fearing him enough to do the right thing. There's a pressure on us today to conform to society, to just do whatever pleases society. Listen, there's a God in heaven who says, will you not fear me? Will you not trust me? Will you not allow me to be sovereign in your life? I tell you, if we will not fear God, then we will fear everything. That is the situation that we find ourselves in. People have fears, all sorts of fears today. They fear poverty, they fear criticism, they fear ill health, they fear the loss of somebody they love, they fear old age, they fear, of de- fear death. But some of them are very much close to us, fear of failure, fear of other men and women. People are haunted by these things. Am I good enough? Listen, if you know the God who is sovereign, you don't have to worry about being good enough. That's why we prayed over Joe. said, don't try and be somebody else. Be the man that God's called you to be. Be who God has called you to be. For who you are is good enough. The world will say you're too fat, you're too thin, you're too tall, you're too short, you're no good at this, you can't do that. Forget it. There's a God in heaven who says, I love you. And I made you in my image. And he loves us. And we have to throw off the fear of man and throw off the fear of all the things that would be precious and say, I fear God and I'm going to honor him more than anything else. We were dancing, or, well, what British people call dancing today in worship, weren't we? Or some of us were jigging about anyway. Do you know, at one point King David did that and his wife looked out the window and she said, look at him. And she despised him. And David said, because I fear God, it's going to get worse. I'm going to lose, learn the two-step and the three-step. <laughs> Listen, if we're going to be people who bring the love of God to the world we live in, it's because we fear God more than anything else. And that fear is an honoring, and it's a, a loving And it's saying, we want you to be number one in our lives. And we want to deal with the pressures that come on life by thinking and fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith.
And so the midwives feared God. I think it's very interesting. I don't know whether you noticed. It says um, at the end here, it says, so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. It says, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. I think that's interesting. It doesn't say he gave them loads of kids. It says he gave them families. So he didn't just have, you know, how many kids we got these days? I don't know, I've got dozens and dozens. No, he's got a family where there's relationship, where there's love, where it's expressed, where there's joy, where there's weeping together at times when we need to weep, and where there's care given when care is needed. That's family as opposed to just people. And it says God loved them, midwives, so much, he gave them families. He put them in families. Somewhere in the scripture it says this, I think it's in Isaiah, it says God puts the lonely in families. That's what the church is about. A family. Where we don't just think of ourselves, but we say we together fear God and worship him together. But we want to include you in this. We want you to be involved with what we're involved with, with the love of God.